This is Jason Cast. This is Scott Nearman. We are MP Local, where we want you to know that you are not alone. I tell you what, Scott, this business is not easy. It has its own unique challenges. This is not about bottom line only. This is not about profit only. We're about mission and changing communities in the nonprofit world. And that is why we started this podcast called NP Local. All right, all right. Welcome to another episode of MP Local Podcast, where we want you to know you are not alone. I'm Jason Cass. And I'm Scott Nearman. And we are here for you, Scott. I appreciate it very much you joining us today, and I appreciate all these local uh, listeners who like to listen to us as well to try to help build their nonprofit. Um, we got some stuff today. Why don't you tell um, everybody what we are going to discuss today to help bring money in their Dizor? That's also door, Scott. We have uh, uh, research that a group called Sea Change Strategies did back in 2008. And if folks haven't heard of it, uh, I want to be sure they know about this because there is a part two and a part three update here over the last 15 years uh, that the organization has done. But I want to start with this first one because I think it is still a problem in nonprofits across America. Um, and that is the missing middle. So the I thought this was interesting. So the missing middle is talking about that donor period. If you listen uh, to our listeners, go back to the November 2020 podcast. We talk about the fundraising pyramid. Mm -hmm. Um, The missing middle is a study from 2008, and it talks about the cost of neglecting those middle range donors. So if you take that donor pyramid in a very simplistic way and you divide it three ways horizontally, that bottom level we know is the largest number of people but they're often one-time donors. They're special event donors. They're direct mail Mm. folks that you're sending to. And so that is a large number, but a pretty small dollar amount. And those are your annual donors, right? And for different organizations, these ranges are different amounts of money. Um, But let's say that's under $1,000 on an annual basis that these folks may send in. Chances are they're not actually even repeating that gift, Jason. They're just coming to the event because a friend asks them to the event. They make a one-time gift and the organization loses them. That's why we have this leaky bucket of donors mm-hmm. in the nonprofit world where 40 to 50% of them don't give a second year in a row. And then at wow. the top of that pyramid, you've got major gifts. And of course, major is defined differently, but many nonprofits will say $10,000 and above. Maybe if you're in a large organization, you say 25000 and above is your major donor that gets that special one-to-one attention. Uh, If you're in a large organization, like a big university, they're going to have a relationship manager. They're going to have a person with a caseload of major donors, a major gift officer. And so at the very top, they're dealing with the 25, 50,000, or even million dollar uh, gifts or better. But in that middle, that middle band in in the donor pyramid um, are your repeat donors. They're your mid-range donors, and they are often ignored. I think every single one of us out there has probably worked in an organization that didn't do very well with this because most organizations don't do very well with this. If you do, we want to hear from you listeners. We want to hear what your strategies are, but I'm going to propose a few today. So that mid-range is, uh, according to the study, 1,000 to 10,000. I'd say for my organization at a small college, 1,000 to maybe 25,000 because our endowments start at 25,000. Um, And these are repeat donors. These are folks that are easier to retain. They're a little more bought in 
signified by repeat giving and an increased dollar amount. They're capable of giving that increased dollar amount. And so that missing middle requires a lot of discipline and investment. Uh, there's no real playbook for it. We got all kinds of conversations about events, direct mail. Uh, we got all kinds of conversations about how to treat that major donor, but we got a missing middle that we got to solve that problem. So let me ask that, Scott. So how do we, how exactly are you, are, are we doing, are you doing that? I mean, and, and all you local listeners know I'm an insurance here. So this is something even for me to learn. Like what is, let's talk about real quick, the psyche of that donor. Um, of or any donor, so they give a big donation of ten thousand or twenty thousand or five thousand. Why? Number one, there's two sides here, and we could talk a lot about this. Why did they? Why aren't they giving more every year? What is the psyche of them? Do they maybe want to give the different organizations every time, or is it just as simple that no one went back out and asked them? No one, you know, followed them through. Uh, made them feel welcome. What do you what do you find out there about that, Scott? I'm trying to think if we've talked about donor motivation in another podcast, but I know that um, there's studies well, out give there a about taste what, right now. Well, I mean, generally donors um, want to be known, right? And they are going to give to people that they know with causes or the causes themselves, if even if they don't know the people. So they go give to give to Causes and people with causes, right? If you want to phrase it that way. But some people give for recognition and some do not. Um, we've talked about that before, right? Some, uh, even those who say they don't want recognition, they want some kind of recognition. One example right. is uh, National Volunteer Week is every April. You know, are you recognizing your office volunteers, your, don't, your uh, board members, things like that? So just a small token of appreciation. We, we all buy branded logo items, just like in business, right? And you're given those ink pens and those, uh, we have barbecue sets in my office, some pretty nice stainless steel barbecue sets. But, you know, that's not the real reason they give, but it's a form of, right. of recognizing uh, mm -hmm. that, that gift. And I think that's what we don't do with the middle, right? We're not getting, I think your real answer, I'm stumbling mm -hmm. around here. But no, 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 you're doing fine. I like this. What you said uh, about not being asked is the number one rule of fundraising. If you don't ask, you don't get, right? And so um, I think that's by and large the reason we, again, we focus on events so much in this work. Um, some organizations think that events equals fundraising. And so I certainly want to appeal to those organizations to think a little bit broader and think about those relationships where uh, you can just deepen and go deeper and show impact with specific people that have proven that they care so much about your organization through volunteer service through helping mm -hmm. put on those events or sponsor those events. Um, I mean, that's the other thing we're not real great at, right, is demonstrating that impact. You're really talking about something good here because that's the thing. I mean, um, I wonder sometimes how my social services, my, my nonprofits get their funding. They get it through the state. They get it through the government. They get it through donors. Uh, they get it through their events. Um, but I, I would say that you – why why this is interesting to me, um, Scott, is that when I'm sitting there thinking of the people that I'm dealing with and they're constantly hitting us up for 250, 500, hey, would you sponsor our comedy show and stuff like that? And at the end of the day, I always think to myself, like, how much can they really be getting off of this? Right. This event can't be bringing in after everything's paid and said and done, maybe a couple grand, which I understand can be a lot to a senior center or maybe some type of, of services. Yeah. But I think to myself, like, 
there's got to be a more considered effort to say, let me say it to this way. Let me say it this way, Scott. Just just thought of this. Guy told me one time when I was learning to sell insurance, uh, life insurance, and I don't sell life insurance, local listeners, but he was tell he was teaching me this. If I did, he said, "There's two people you sell life insurance to: one that have life insurance and one that do not have life insurance. Do not try to sell to the people who do not have life insurance because they've obviously 40, 50 years old, and they've been told millions of times that they should probably get life insurance, and they haven't." But there's a bunch of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 year olds who have life insurance and probably have an outdated product or something that they're sitting there with reserves and money that they don't know about because they bought it a long time ago. Those are the people you talk to because number one, they need the guidance and the assistance. But number two, they've proven to show the value of life insurance. I can see the same thing here. If I'm an executive director or I'm in charge of fundraising, I would say, listen, we can try to beat up and get as many new people as we want and people who, yeah, they want to support the, the, the service. So they come to the comedy show. But what about that, that guy or girl that literally has a thousand to $2,000 a year and they'll give it every year, which is what we were making off the event anyways. And like you're saying, just little bitty things of appreciation. Maybe they didn't want people to know that they gave that donation, but that doesn't mean that they can't be honored and respected from you or the organization who knew they gave that. You know what I mean? Any thoughts on that, Scott? Well, I think the last point there, we want to make our thank you to any donor the next ask so that we don't have to ask. You want to thank them and love on them so well that, uh, for example, I had a call this week from a donor and I knew that it was somebody that had supported us once or twice a year in a fairly significant level. And um, uh, when staff answered the phone, they didn't necessarily know this person's giving range, but I remembered it. And um, and I called her right back the next morning as soon as I was uh, on the clock that morning. And, um, you know, they're planning a gift and they kind of were asking how to steer this gift. But I didn't ask for that. Right. There's going to be a check in the mail in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I didn't ask for it because we have taken care of them and we've taken them to lunch and well we've introduced said, them God. to our board members and they've had tours and have been invited to events as our guest at, at an I've event. seen the impact of what their dollars done and hearing the stories and listening to students speak in our case, uh, you know, the client. Um, but I think, you know, the study has eight specific strategies on how to fix this. Uh, but, but just generally speaking, I mean, I think, uh, the, the basic strategy that so many organizations use is the annual giving societies, right? For this band or this level, um, you're going to be dubbed this and we're going to put your name in the newsletter and we're going to give you a thing. And, and so those are fine and good. I'm not, I don't get real excited about those, but you need to have that. Um, uh, but I think there's some more important strategies, maybe some higher level thinking that needs to happen. If you're going to fix the problem of the millions of dollars that we're missing out on in that missing middle, to your point, a hundred dollar hole sponsor at a golf tournament and all the expenses and labor that goes into an event is fine and nice. But if that, you know, and you want those repeated, right? You want to have that golf tournament year after year after year. But if that person that you're talking to has a specific interest on making an impact and they're able to give a thousand dollars and not a hundred dollars, you need a strategy to develop that relationship. That's why they call it fund development and move them up into that middle category and then keep them given a thousand year after year and not be content with the hundred a year after year. 
I like that. And you know, it's easy. Some people will say, well, it's easy for me to go ask for $100 from a business for um, a, a, a whole sponsor. Um, and, and that's how I like to get our donations really build up for our event. And it's like, if you really think about that, there's nothing wrong with that. But I want us to think of the psychology of that and the fact that you feel as if you're giving value when you're giving a whole sponsor, but you obviously don't feel as if you're giving value when you're asking for donations in the same regard, right? Because I think if you're asking and there's value behind it, you really probably don't have a hard time asking for the thing, the item, or the amount of money. Um, so that that's that's interesting. You, I tell you what, sometimes uh, uh, local listeners, this stuff can be kind of boring to my insurance mind. But this morning, Scott, you actually got me really kind of thinking of something because I can, as I always do, I can equate this to my business. Right, I can equate it as to how my producers are out there trying to help our clients. If they don't have anything of value, they don't want to make the call. But if they know they saved the person money or they oh, got yes. the money back on their audit, that's they're right. like, "Oh yeah, I'll call them as soon as I possibly can." You know. Well, and that's a whole other conversation, right? The the fundraisers have to believe in their product just as mm-hmm. in sales. Okay, that the, the mm-hmm. fundraiser has to know what that is, and a lot of times, especially in a big organization, getting to that impact data is kind of challenging. You know, you have multiple departments maybe that you have to collaborate with. You got to dig in, you got to do the homework. And let me just say the first uh, uh, of the eight tips that Sea uh, Change Strategies provides from 2008, that first one is leadership. Um, leadership has to understand whether it's fundraising leadership or organizational leadership or both. They have Everything to understand the interrelationships. Everything. That's right. Rises and falls on leadership. Who said that? It does. That's the truth too. So you got to understand because uh, the second point is people power. Why is leadership important? Because those folks set the budgets and you got to have people and you got to have the budget in order to implement the strategies that, by the way, with annual donors in that lower level of the pyramid, um, you're dealing with groups of people, a golf tournament, right, as our example. Um, at the top, these are one-to-one relationships, as I mentioned, right? They've got that major mm-hmm. gift officer with a caseload. But in the middle, it's a smaller group. These are these are folks. So you got to strategize, and you got to have the staff, and you got to have the time to take a small group on a tour to go present your PowerPoint to that small civic organization. Uh, you've got to uh, find, for example, uh, something I've been thinking about recently in our shop is those who lost a student while they were at our college, and the families and within the course of one, two, three years, set up a scholarship in memory of so-and-so. Well, that's a whole mm-hmm. subgroup of our donors. And we've been talking mm-hmm. about what we might be able to do with that. Because good stuff, dude. we're brought in in a, in a very poignant time in their life. And, and you know, they're calling our office asking what they're supposed to put in the obituary because we want to start scholarship. And, of course, we're very grateful. And, and you hate the circumstances surrounding it. But um, it is a great way to honor somebody. And so what can we do for them? What, how can we, frankly, Jason, minister? to them during this time. And so that is a subgroup. And so part of this, um, I think it's uh, the fourth point is measuring and tracking progress. Okay. They call it to attribute, but really that's a focus on those subgroups, finding the people in the bottom and sifting them as if in a colander or a screen and, and figuring out who we can focus on. I kind of mentioned also uh, another point, which is silo busting. And I think that's particularly important mm-hmm. in the politics of large fundraising shops. Think a big university where every college has their own fundraising uh, folks. And so you got to cross over those silos. If you're both working 
uh, with, you know, the school of law and the school of business are both working with the same donor because they came through both schools or some, or one spouse came through one and one through the other. You got to work together and bust. Break Advanced down those silo rules. smashing is what they call it. I like that because man, silos are in every type of business as well. Right. Trying to bust down silos, uh, marketing silos, sales silos, service silos, and trying to get people to, we have to, we, we did come from a country over the last 100, 200, 300 years. We still believe in our independence, but we also have to, we're starting to realize in a society of caring and sharing of, of multiple talents, busting down those silos is, is crucial. It really, really truly is. I like sure. that very much. And I also want to say something here. Um, this is uh, local listeners. We've really, really been having some good conversation um, going this morning. And so we're going to have to um, modify this a little bit because this document that, that Scott has here is very long. Um, and I want you guys to see it. And I don't want to say very long. We're about halfway through it. But I also, Scott, I don't want you to quicken up everything. Okay. I mean, if we have to, let's do a part two and then continue on the same conversation because we only do have about four minutes left and I don't want to have to you to bust through this. You're doing pretty good on this. Sure. Stuff. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, there's uh, so there's eight points total. Um, the fifth point is having the right content. I think that's kind of what we've been getting to, right, is how mm -hmm. to focus on those subgroups, provide the personal touch. And the point the article makes is. Uh, this is more like major gifts than it is annual donors or or the uh, bottom of the pyramid. And so um, I think what maybe I'll wrap this up by saying and we can do a part two, Jason, is that um, I've been there right where my comfort zone is the hundred dollar whole sponsorship. And most of us start out in annual giving. Most of us start out with events. What I think is the true limitation, though, is when folks believe that, as I said earlier, that special events equal fundraising or that the direct mail equals fundraising. Unfortunately, that is a pervasive mindset in small nonprofits. And that's who I like to work with in my consulting, Jason, because I think there is so much opportunity with some of these small nonprofits that are truly meeting a need. Uh, they have wise boards. They have uh, talented staff. Yes, they're overworked. Yes, they're underpaid, but they know it. And, and they're, the staff's in there for the right reasons in those cases, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I love to open up their minds to new ideas. And, you know, these aren't things that I've come up with per se. Uh, you know, it's following the research and it's understanding, as we said, with leadership, the full interrelationship of how that pyramid works. Uh, folks that work with me, I think I've said before, get kind of tired hearing about the donor pyramid. But by golly, if you don't understand that, you don't understand fundraising. And so we can conceptualize it a, maybe a few different ways. But that donor pyramid is tried and true. And I think this missing middle is something that um, that we can all focus on, even though the studies from 2008. This is an so ongoing local listeners, problem. He, he won't say it because his name's Scott and he's humble. Um, but he beats up this py pyramid and about talk about donating fundraisers because number one, nothing happens in this world without money, especially when we're talking about nonprofits who are in charge of using money to help better other people's lives or whatever that could be. But Scott, you're big on this because I'm not going to say you've mastered it. Everybody has things to learn. But sure. going through your history of you going from not just your education, but then going through the different uh, foundations that you've worked with in different organizations to now where you are today, um, I know that one of your 
uh, high trait qualities is, is you're a lot, you do really good with connecting with people and helping them become hmm. um, involved in it as a, not just a board member, not just as a donor, but having the people understand what your organization does and who it helps. Well, thank you. And so local listeners, that's what's important is when you're listening to Scott in this, he's actually a pretty boring person, but you can hear he kind of starts hey, to hey, get hey, a little hey, bit hey. of, <laughs> hey, Scott, you're, you're not very exciting, but here's the deal. When you, you haven't you seen me tell over the last 20 I'm Over kidding. the last 20 minutes, you started getting a little excited. You start getting that little pep in your step. You know what I mean? Because you're super confident and you and your and your history proves that of where of where you've went. Uh so so that's fantastic. Yes, yeah, Scotty is from my hometown, local listeners. He's out of Tennessee now. Um we didn't go to school together, him and my wife did, but uh he has had a vast history, if you haven't already heard it from some of my podcasts, um, when it has to uh, helping organizations, foundations. Um, and then what was the one you were in in Centralia, which launched you to where you are now? Was it St. Mary's Foundation or something? Yeah, we started the we started a hospital foundation in a small hospital, small That's hundred right. year old uh, hospital and, and a large that, system. I was the first director. They uh, they had it incorporated on paper, uh, but they had not staffed it up and done anything with it. And so the uh, folks in charge at the time uh, said, now is wow. the time, okay. I think. I think they probably wish they'd have done it 50 years ago. You know, uh, I bet you of, they did. a lot of colleges, hospitals started long before, but we were starting that uh, in the uh, middle of healthcare reform at the end of a recession. So it was an interesting time. Yeah, I well, think we did pretty well considering the I circumstances. Think you did. I think you did damn well, Scott. Say, if he's saying he thinks he did pretty well, that means he's doing real well because he's a very humble person, local listeners. We are going to continue on a part two. So, local listeners, you come back because I want to continue on to this, Scott. I don't want us to flow through this. Sure. When, uh, the step five has has six steps in it alone. And we don't want to go through all of those. But sure. what the local listeners want to hear is they want to hear these little ideas that you have. I talk to a lot of of, of, of my services, right? And I haven't heard any of them talking about taking their donors or taking their people on a tour. I know to you, that's like what well, Scott's probably like, yeah, Jason, that's something we do. And local listeners, maybe you may be listening, but I want you to know there's a lot of you local listeners that are thinking, yeah, that's something that we can do. Want to talk more okay. about that and some other things that we go, okay, Scott? Sounds so we're like a come plan. back here for part two. But local listeners, we do appreciate you. We want you to know that you are not alone. I'm Jason Cass. And I'm Scott Nearman. And we are here for you. We are out.